Well, in our previous hour, uh, during the, the prayer time, we prayed for uh, Pastor uh, Bruce Ray and uh, his wife, Terry. She's been really fighting some uh, just severe battles with uh, some maladies, and so we lifted up her uh, in prayer. And um, actually, Bruce was scheduled to preach today, and um, so it was the right thing for him to, to stay home and be with uh, his wife today, which means... Um, wasn't the music good? <laughs> I mean, that was good to sing. Uh, so um, I, I, I had some other obligations this week that I had to had to attend to, so I wasn't able to spend the, the, the time I normally do in preparation. So we will be back in Hebrews next Sunday morning, uh, but today we'll just uh, we'll look at James chapter one for a while, shall we? And hope that will be a, a good preparation for uh, the observing of the Lord's uh, table. So James chapter 1, and I'm going to be read verse, begin with verse 22 down through verse 27, and then we'll focus in for a few moments on verse 26. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22 uh, down through verse 27, very practical book. Verse 22, chapter 1, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Uh, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your many, many kindnesses to us. We thank you for Uh, your incessant tokens of grace that continue to come into our lives. And we thank you for the the privilege we have to gather together on this day and and, and sing to a God that is so glorious and and so worthy of adoration and praise. And so I I would ask these moments together that you would help me by your Holy Spirit to to bring forth your your precious word in in a way that is honoring to thee uh, and that is, is truly good for the souls of each one that is here this morning. So we thank you and pray as well that it might prove to be a, a preparation of our hearts for the, the preciousness of observing the Lord's table. So we commit our time to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 22 to 25 um, emphasize the importance of being a doer of the word. Uh, that point is brought out in verse 22, prove yourselves doer of the word, doers of the word. Again, in verse 25, you see the phrase, an effectual doer. Um, and James uses an illustration um, about somebody who looks in the mirror and then forgets what kind of a person he is. And the point of comparison, I believe, is those who would look into the word and it would have no effect upon their souls. Um, anyone who's been around Christianity for any length of time at all uh, knows the importance of an ongoing relationship with the Holy Scriptures. We all understand that. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, 
Jesus was therefore saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you might recall in uh, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, we read about those that were converted. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. So it's right to view it as a dangerous sign, uh, whether it's in ourselves or others, when there's a drifting away from an ongoing interaction with, with Holy Scripture. Uh, but, but James's words here uh, suggest there's a tendency for this practice of interacting with the Word, which is so necessary, to, be, to become perfunctory and just to sort of put our minds on, on cruise control. So he warns against that condition. He warns against being a hearer of the Word only and not a doer of the Word. And being the practical author that he is or teacher that he is, he goes a step further and clarifies uh, what does it mean to be a doer of the word? So we might be reading through it and ask, okay, I should be a doer of the word. What, what does that mean or what does that include? And he, he lists three clear examples. This is what it means to be a doer of the word. Number one, to bridle one's tongue. Number two, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And, and number three, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So to be a, a doer of the word in, includes these three different activities. Number one, to use restraint in one's speech. Number two, uh, to respond to the needs of the helpless. In, in Psalm 41, 1, it says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, thou dost restore him to health. And then thirdly, the doer of the word will keep himself unspotted or unstained from the world. And later on, James will make the point to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And in 1 John chapter 2, we read, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So these are the three things, at least here, that is presented that one engages in to be a doer of the word. Now these three items, they're also presented as tests of God-honoring religion. They're also presented as tests of God-honoring religion. Now it's possible, however, that when James asserts these elements of God-pleasing religion, it might surprise us. Uh, to observe that uh, the first thing mentioned here is not to refrain from immorality or drunkenness or stealing, but, but rather uh, to be one who bridles the tongue. And the profile that he gives here of the one who is deceived about the genuineness of his or her religion is the person, uh, who, the person whose religion is worthless. It's the one who does not bridle his or her tongue. It's of no value. He does not control it. He does not hold it in check. He doesn't use any restraint. So the force of the text is the one who does not bridle his or her tongue, his religion in God's sight is worthless. It's like you might read about somebody that finds a, a coin that ends up being worth a fortune or a baseball card that ends up being worth a lot of money. So you find a baseball card and you check it out and it's worth nothing. You thought it was maybe worth something. It's worth nothing or a coin. And the idea here is somebody may think their religion is worth something, but if they don't bridle their tongue in God's sight, it's worth nothing. So the force of the text is the one who does not bridle his or her tongue in God's sight, their religion is nothing. If he does not hold his tongue or words in check, um, they are deceived, deceived about the legitimacy of their religion. Robert Johnstone has written a very helpful commentary on James. 
He writes, the case supposed is that of a hearer of the word. A person, say, who attends the house of God with considerable, perhaps great regularity, to which the Bible is not by any means an unfamiliar book, but all the while has a tongue that is unbridled. Well, since we obviously want to be not hearers only, but practitioners of the word, and since from God's viewpoint, from God's perspective, we want to be practitioners of, of true religion, um, how, the question is, how, as a Christian, can I make progress in this discipline of restrained, restrained, restrained speech? That is a, a component of genuine God-honoring religion. So three major considerations this morning that I hope is a helpful to your thinking process in this particular area of the Christian life. In the first place, I think it's necessary to underscore that keeping a bridle on the tongue is a fact, is a non-negotiable element of genuine religion. It's bridling the tongue. It's a non-negotiable element of genuine religion. That is, it's not debatable. It's not optional. The text is very emphatic and very impressive. The one who does not bridle his or her tongue, it indicates they're deceiving. They're, they're excuse me. They're deceiving themselves, their own heart with regard to the legitimacy or the authenticity of their own religion before God. They're, they're thinking something about themselves which is not true. They're deluding themselves. And Robert Johnston comments, or Johnstone comments on the, the meaning of this term religion. He wrote, at the time of our translation was made, these words seem to have been generally, if not always, employed with reference to the outward forms in which what we now usually call religion, a reverence and love to God, showed itself. The words do not occur often in our Bible, nowhere in the Old Testament, and but a few times in the New, that is, religion or religious. But in every case, they refer to what we what we may call the body, not the soul of religion, to forms of worship under which there might or might not be true piety, godly, and godliness are terms our translators employ for the spirit of religion. Uh, for example, uh, prayer is, is a practice of a godly person. Uh, a person who is godly will express their delight in God and their communion with God through prayer, and, and they will be a person of prayer. Nevertheless, just because a person prays does not mean they're a godly person, doesn't even mean they're converted. Uh, Jesus uh, began one verse in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues. It's the same idea as Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, because his people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips service, but they remove their hearts far from me, their, their reverence for me consists in tradition learned by rote. So re religion will include, it must include certain outward and external forms, but the practice of it, which, which is not necessary for the essence of true religion. So here we see the importance under this heading of bridling the tongue, as a non-negotiable non element of, uh, of true religion, and there's three related thoughts here under this first heading. Uh, number one is to note the rapidity with which sins of the tongue are committed. That is, they can happen fast. John Stone writes, almost before we are conscious that a thought has entered the mind, before we have taken a moment to ponder its nature or consequences of uttering it, it, it it's leaped into outward life as a spoken sentence. It's, it's like pulling a trigger and trying to get the bullet back. It's gone. It's already hit the target. It's already done the damage. Um, uh, there's other sins that take uh, more deliberation, but sins of the tongue can pour out before we have considered what effect they will have on others. Then, then secondly, um, the opportunity with which sins of this nature 
could be committed are numerous. That is, there are many opportunities for sins of the tongue. Again, John Stone writes, again, think of the great scope there is for going wrong. Uh, to most of the other sins which take an outward form, temptations present themselves but occasionally. And if we desire it, we may, um, we may to a considerable extent keep ourselves clear of the circumstances in which the temptations occur. But business and the general interaction of life cannot be carried on without speaking. And therefore, there's always abundant scope and temptation for offenses of the tongue. The words any one of us speaks during one day of average talkativeness would, I suppose, if printed, go far to fill a fairly sized volume. So he's saying we we speak a book a day, and maybe for some it's a couple of books a day. So the opportunities are, are numerous because the words just keep coming. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when there are many words Transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. To restrain is to hold back. It's not to pull the verbal trigger, so to speak. Well, then, thirdly, um, the credibility of our Christian faith is enhanced or decreased depending on whether or not we bridle the tongue. The, the, um, the credibility, or we might say the testimony of our, our Christianity is enhanced or diminished, we could say, depending on whether or not we bridle the tongue. Johnstone, he makes the point that um, in our efforts to uh, employ God-honoring words, we get no help from the world here. And he writes this, It is not the tendency of our minds to reason thus. A hasty word, vented in a moment of excitement, a slight misrepresentation, a profane joke, an impure innuendo. So obviously he views a profane joke and an impure innuendo as contrary to God-pleasing speech, and it is. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, and that it may minister grace to the hearers. In Colossians 3.8 But now do ye also put them all away, put these away, anger, wrath, malice, railing, and shameful speaking out of your mouth. Or the King James, uh, filthy communication out of your mouth. This is especially in contrast to what one was prior to becoming a Christian. Now, I suppose someone might say or or think, or you you might meet someone who would say, well, in most cases that is true. Um, and we should put a guard over our mouth. We should be careful what we say. But what about identifying with lost people? What about in the category of evangelism? What about being relevant? Is, there an, is this another category where it's okay for corrupt communication is needed when we're witnessing to lost people? I remember some time ago listening to an address by, a, by Phil Johnson with Grace to You. This was at a Shepherds Conference. It seemed very well researched, and he was talking about a, a trend in this direction. And the text that he used was from Titus chapter 2. And verse 6 reads, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified. And then verse 8 says, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. That was kind of what he was pulling from. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. In order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And he indicated there was a trend among pastors uh, under, under the rubric of contextualizations and being relevant to, and reaching people for the gospel to kind of use raunchy language, off-color language, 
and and some were saying this was a positive trend, and obviously the desire to see unsaved people is is a good thing. And all I, I would say with respect to that is that approach, uh, whether one is a pastor or not, it's radically wrong. It's a totally wrong way to be thinking. It's an antithesis of what the gospel, the true gospel produces, which is holy people that affects their speech. The gospel always has the effect of producing holiness, and that affects the words that come out of our mouths. And and keep in mind, I know I've made this point before, but keep in mind, whenever a person is truly interested in salvation, I mean, they're really interested in being right with God. They're really concerned about the salvation of their soul. But the Spirit has to be working. And according to the Bible, the Spirit that is working is called not the profane Spirit, but the Holy Spirit. And and, and also, the cry of their soul will be... deliverance from the ruling, reigning power of sin, which includes everything that we would say. Uh, it's always a tonic for my soul to be reading or rereading about the life of George Whitfield. Uh, you could argue this, but he was certainly one of the great, greatly used of God evangelists in church history in the, the 18th century. And it's always encouraged me just to read how the Lord used his life and ministry. He had a sermon entitled, this is the title of the sermon, The Heinous Sin of Profane Cursing and Swearing. And that's, that's where he was with respect to this whole thing. The, the heinous sin of profane cursing and swearing. So let no corrupt communication come from your mouth. That's appropriate for Christians in all settings at all times. The other option is to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So in the first place, the text underscores um, the, the fact that the bridling of the tongue, it's a non-negotiable element of true God-pleasing religion. There's, just, there's no debate. There's no, it's right. It brings honor and glory to God. Well, then, in the second place, as a Christian, if you and I are to make progress in this issue of restrained speech, we need to consider two reasons why such progress is necessary. Two reasons why such progress is necessary. The first reason is that by nature, speech is unrestrained. By nature, speech is unrestrained. And, And therefore, by the effects of remaining sin, speech is unrestrained. Again, to quote Johnstone, the tongue needs to be bridled. Like all the other members, it's by nature yielded up as an instrument of unrighteousness uh, under the impulse of unholy passions. By nature, its course is wild and destructive, like that of a spirited horse, infuriated and free from bit and bridle. And and what is implied there is um, asserted in chapter 3 and verse 7. Every species of beast and and birds, uh, reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed, and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So the picture here is of a a wild, untrained horse before it can be used or is safe. It has to be tamed or broken or whatever the right terminology is. And and James, um, it makes it clear this is no easy task, which is actually quite amazing because we see uh, other animals that human beings are able to, to train. You've probably been to or watched a circus, and there's a, there's a big enclosure, and there's a guy in the middle of seven or eight lions, and he's got them all under control. Or you may have, have seen or been to some place like SeaWorld, and somebody is, is riding around on the back of, of a killer whale in the pool, and they're not being killed. So it's amazing how we can tame these things, but we cannot tame the tongue. Its nature is unruly. Well, reason two, we must learn to restrain our speech because of the danger, the damage it can do to ourselves and to others. Uh, So two different reasons here. Number one, we must learn to tame the tongue because of the damage it can do to ourselves. In James chapter 3 and verse 6, 
It says it defiles the entire body. That's the effect on ourselves. It defiles the entire body. Uh, it means to stain or pollute. So ungodly speech has a, a negative effect on one's own soul. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-three says the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. So it does something negative to the soul that, that will manifest itself in an angry disposition. Proverbs uh, chapter 13 and verse 3 says the one who, this is really a good verse, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 21, 23, this is really a good verse. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. So it needs, so we need to restrain our speech because of the detrimental effect on our own soul. But then secondly, um, because of the devastating effects that it can have on others. In James chapter 3 and verse 5, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. Um, behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. So James, he uses an illustration that everybody in all times and all places can relate to. That is the damage that is caused by a fire. You've probably heard of the great Chicago fire of 1871. You may not have heard of the great Chicago fire of 1871, but in 1871, there was a great fire, massive fire in Chicago. Um, it was claimed to have been started at about 8.30 on October the 8th in or around a small barn belonging to the O'Leary family. The shed next to the barn was the first building to be consumed by the fire. The city officials never determined the cause of the blaze, but the rapid spread of the fire due to a long drought in that year's summer, strong winds from the southwest, and the rapid destruction of the water pumping system explain the extensive damage of the mainly wooden city structures. There's been much speculation over the years on a single start to the fire. The most popular tale blames Mrs. O'Leary's cow, who allegedly knocked over a lantern. Others state that a group of men were gambling inside the barn, knocked over a lantern. So it began in a, a neighborhood in the southwest corner of the city, and there was a, a long period of hot, dry, windy conditions. The wooden construction prevalent in the city led to this conflagration. Uh, the fire leapt the south branch of the Chicago River and destroyed much of the central Chicago, then leapt the main branch of the river, consuming the north side, the near north side. The fire killed approximately 300 people, destroyed roughly 3.3 square miles of the city, including over 17,000 structures, and left more than 100,000 uh, 100, residents homeless. So James compares the, the, the damage that the tongue can do to that of a fire, uh, which is extreme. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 16.28 says, A perverse man spreads strife, and, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Or the ASV says, A, a tale-bearer separates intimate friends. It's, it's very sobering to think that here's two people that are good friends, and, and somebody else is a slanderer who traffics and have truths, and, and the result is these two people, they're not friends anymore. So it can do great damage. So when we ask the question, why should we cultivate the virtue of restrained speech? It's because of the damage it can do to ourselves and the damage that it does to others. So in light of the fact that restrained speech, it's a mark of true God-pleasing religion, in light of the need to tame that which is by nature unruly, in light of the fact that left unrestrained, the tongue can wreak havoc in our own souls and that of others, then in the third place and in the last place, what are some practical steps we can take 
to restrain our speech in a God-pleasing way. Some practical steps that we can take to restrain our speech in a God-pleasing way. Number one, take an immediate perpetual vow of silence. But that's not very practical, so we'll go to number two. And this, I, I, I have you know, some different steps listed here. This is the best. This is the best. I mean, how do we really make progress in, in this area of restraining the tongue? This is, I, I think, that I want you to listen to the others, but, but I think this is the best. Always make the condition of your heart before God a priority. Always make the condition of your heart before God a priority. Because the words we speak are a revelation of the condition of the heart. They don't draw, they don't just drop out of thin air. They come from somewhere, and the place they come from is the heart. Um, so it's the effect of whatever fills or is influencing the heart at a particular given point in time. Luke 6.45 says, For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Uh, that's why um, morning is such a good time to, to meet with God and have the, the soul affected by the character of God before you get out into the world. Robert Murray McShane said, A calm hour with God is worth a whole lifetime with man. Now, here's a, here's a good psalm to pray in the morning. Now, if you read it, it will say it's, a, it's an evening psalm. So it's good to pray this in the evening. But I'm saying it's also, even though it says it's an evening psalm, it's a good psalm to pray in the morning. This is from Psalm 141. David says, O Lord, I call upon thee, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to thee. May my prayer be counted as incense before thee, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. And here's the content of his prayer. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Number two, uh, this is pretty obvious, but realize the importance of taking responsibility for your words. I'm responsible for the words I speak. You're responsible for the words that you speak. Psalm 34, 13 says, keep your tongue, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Well, then thirdly, consider as much as possible the effect that your words will have before you speak them. Consider as much as possible the effect that your words would have before you speak them. Here's a question in Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? That's the question. And if you see someone like that, here's the conclusion. There, there's more hope for a fool than for him, the one who is hasty in his words. It suggests that it's, it's one who's giving no thought or no reflection to the effect that this word or that word would have on others. Well, then, fourthly, we need to consider the fact that we will be held accountable for our words. We will be held accountable for our words. Matthew 12, 36, I say to you, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Leon Morris comments, Jesus is saying, in the end, we must all give an account of ourselves, and that words we take lightly will then be seen to have meaning. Well, then, the fifth thing, and this, maybe this is more positively, consider that through Christ and through communion with Christ, we can and we will make progress in this activity of um, restraining the tongue, communing with Christ and worshiping Christ. John Stone writes, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil, and among them falsehood, profanity, unkind, unclean, unprofitable talk. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning you might be pleased to take what we have considered and apply it to our own souls. I pray it would be helpful to each of us as we...
consider living for your glory and being salt and light in this world, being an encouragement and a help to others and um, for the peace of our own soul. So I, I pray that you would just cause uh, this consideration to be um, edifying uh, to, to our hearts and uh, helpful as we think about living the Christian life for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.